All right. Well, Revelation chapter 5, let's dig into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. I pray for anybody who's new here today that they would feel welcomed and loved. Here at Calvary Chapel, we don't have church membership. You show up, we adopted you into our family already. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear. I ask that the men would decrease, that your spirit would increase. As we look at the book of Revelation, it's, it's hard for many to understand. But I pay, pray that people would leave here with clarity this morning. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name, we pray. And all God's people said... So we've been looking in the book of Revelation, right? Revelation 1.19 gives us the outline for the book, the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. We saw in chapter 1, we got a glimpse of heaven and Jesus in heaven. Chapter 2 and 3, we saw the church age. We had the seven churches, the letter to the seven churches. Then at the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, we see the church is mentioned 19 times in chapter 2 and 3 and never again in the rest of the book of Revelation until the second coming of Christ. And so, again, you can have a different perspective on end times and that's okay. It's not essential for salvation. But to me, it is so clear that, we, that the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational, premillennial rapture of the church. And if you don't believe that way, that's okay. We can agree to disagree, and you'll be glad when you go with us. Amen? <laughs> but the reality is that we see where we get the word rapture. People say it's not in the Bible. It actually is in chapter 4, verse 1, when John is called up. So he has an earthly perspective in chapter 2 and 3. And then chapter 4 on, he's looking from a heavenly perspective. And the word there is caught up, harpazo, but in Latin it's rapturo, and where we get the word rapture. And so we see he's having a heavenly perspective. And if you were here last week, we saw a glimpse of heaven. And in heaven, we saw that the focal point of heaven is the throne of God. I'm, four of you paid attention last week. That's very helpful. No, it's the throne of God. The focus is on the Lord. He is the center of attention. As John is glimpsing into heaven, he doesn't talk about the streets of gold or the pearly gates. He's talking about the presence of Almighty God. And what do we see there? We see the 24 uh, on lesser thrones around the throne of God. Again, we don't have a direct uh, interpretation exactly what that is, but we know that there's elders who are there. And again, that they have crowns upon their head and they were people that were used by the Lord and they're around the throne along with the angelic hosting and holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then we saw that there were two colors that came off the throne. One was, again, the jasper stone, and one was the sardis. One's bright white, a picture of the holiness of God. And then this red hue that came in with it, again, could be a picture of the shed blood of Jesus upon the cross of Calvary. Again, our God is holy, and the only way we can be redeemed is through his shed blood upon the cross. Amen? Then we saw that there was a rainbow around the throne, which is a reminder that God is faithful to his promises. Uh, most of you guys know, by the way, this coming Thursday is my last day at work after 35 years with the same company. And I was driving on a sales call the other day and I saw the most beautiful rainbow I've ever seen in my life. It was pouring down rain on the way to Lancaster. You know where Lancaster is? You go to nowhere and go like 40 miles past that. And I can say that because I, I, I lived there for 10 years. But I was driving and I just saw the promise of God. And just as such a reminder that God is faithful to his promises. Amen? So now as we come to chapter 5, I have an outline I sent to, I, you should have it in your hand. Did you grab it? Let's go over it together. 
title of the message, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. By the way, did anybody not get an outline? We're good? Okay. All right, worthy is the Lamb. And what we're going to see this morning is such an awesome picture in heaven as the Lord is approached as John is getting a glimpse into heaven and seeing how people are responding to the presence of Almighty God, and we're going to see there's this, this scroll, and on this scroll, these scrolls are it's a, like a letter, and on this scroll, it's written on both sides, and it's got seven seals on this scroll, and there, there's nobody who can open the scroll. We're going to talk about who it is that's worthy to open it. So I tell the message, worthy is the Lamb. So it's who, who is worthy to open the scroll of redemption? By the way, pray. I, I, I knew the Mormon church was a mess, but man, are they a mess. Because I was talking to a guy this week, and he said that God sent Joseph Smith to fix the things where Jesus failed. And my head was going to explode. I said, Jesus failed? Do you want to say that one more time? Our God did not fail. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. He's a perfect, all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful God, and he's the, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that's the God that we serve, amen? And when he said Jesus failed, then he didn't back off. He kept, well, that's why Joseph Smith had to, I said, okay, so you're putting your faith into a polygamist who stole other people's wives, who was a fairy tale writer who died in a gunfight, and we can dig up his bones, and I'm putting my faith into the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Almighty God who suffered and died, and then rose from the dead, proving himself to be God and his seat at the right hand of the Father. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Now, the whole, amen. But the point is that Worthy is the Lamb, not the Buddha, not the Hindus, not the Joseph Smith. And again, do we love all these people? What's the answer? Do we want to see them all saved? What's the answer? We do. But when you are preaching a false gospel, we must stand up for the truth and let people know that there is a true and living God. So first we're going to see who is worthy. The writing on the scroll is completed. You see that I've got a lot of uh, notes underneath there. I want you to take those home with you. But what's interesting, we're going to see in the text that the person who opened the scroll had to be a kinsman. Okay, the kinsman redeemer was somebody that would come in when your, when your family was in a difficult situation or when somebody's, you know, you saw the story with, with, uh, with Ruth, right? And the kinsman redeemer is the one that comes and, and, and redeems, right? Someone who's lost their husband in this case. But this person who could open the scroll had to be a kinsman, which meant, meant they have to be human. They had to have taken on humanity. But also, along with being a kinsman related to Adam, they must also have the power to purchase the property back. And again, to redeem us. And so we are going to see that the one who is worthy must be both human and divine. Amen? Well, that eliminates everybody but Jesus. Amen? We're going to see that. Number two, none found worthy. No created being is able to open the scroll. No angel, no human being, no demon. We'll see that. Uh, John, heartbroken at the thought of Satan's continued dominion over the world. Now again, who's on the throne and who's in control? What's the answer? Okay. But who has dominion over the earth right now? Satan. Satan. And that happened in the garden. And we're going to talk about that. Thirdly, one is worthy, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is able to redeem the world and sinful man, the one and only risen and living Redeemer of all mankind. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Root of David, 
and he's the lamb. Again, they're going to see him. He sees him in heaven. John sees Jesus in heaven, and he sees him as one who is still slain, which means the scars remain for all eternity. So instead, the only scars in heaven are going to be the ones on our Savior. And then finally, how do we respond to the one who is worthy? We certainly don't say he's a failure. Amen. The response of the redeemed, the response is immediate and complete. They fall down before, on their face before him and they worship him because he is worthy to be worshiped, to be praised and to be honored. And in tonight's text or this morning's text, it's going to say out of every tongue, tribe and nation. So Jesus is not a God of the Europeans and America. Amen. He is a God of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all languages. And then the response of all of creation. One of my wife's favorite songs is that song by, I think it's Mercy Me, All of Creation, Sing With Me Now. And it's so true that all of creation, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? By the way, we're going to do that a little bit of this, uh, in this morning's text, that most of the way that we, we uh, interpret the book of Revelation, like we do with anything in the Bible, is using the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Amen? And over two-thirds of everything in Revelation is a reference to something that we can see in the Old Testament. We're going to get a little glimpse of that this morning as well. So let's begin there in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 5. And it says there, And I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So the focal point of heaven is the throne of God, as we've talked about. The, the, the beautiful colors emanating from it, the 24 elders around the throne on lesser thrones wearing white robes and golden crowns that they will end up casting at his feet, the lightning and thunderings of voices proceeding from the throne like the throne of uh, the voice of God on Mount Sinai, the seven lamps of fire before the throne, a picture of the Holy Spirit, the sea of glass before the throne, the bronze laver, and the, we know in the Old Testament, it tells us that the tabernacle is a model of what we see in heaven. And everything in the tabernacle, I don't have time to go through it because we've got a lot to cover this morning, but every piece of furniture in the tabernacle points to Jesus. Amen? The golden lampstand, he's the light of the world. The table of showbread, he's the bread of life. The altar of incense, right? He is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. The Ark of the Covenant, all a picture of the Lord. The two angels, a cherubim at the head and at the foot. Uh, when Jesus raises from the dead, a picture of what you see in the Ark of the Covenant. And all of it, the bronze laver, a picture of the cross. I mean, the bronze altar, a picture of the cross. The bronze laver, a picture of baptism. So it's all a picture of Jesus, every single bit of it. And then we saw that there were, you guys remember this, the cherubim from last week, they had four faces on the cherubim, and depending on what angle you looked at them, and the four faces were that of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle, and we were all talking about this from last week. What does that all mean? And this is where people kind of lose it in the book of Revelation, but when you take the time to study the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 3, we talked about this last week, Okay, for those who weren't here, that when, they, when you read Numbers chapter 3, it looks like you're building an erector set or something, right? It's got these, and this tribe should be northeast to this pole, and they should be perpendicular. And, and you start reading it like, why do they do this? But you'll see that the three tribes to the north are a smaller amount. The ones to the south are much larger. The east and the west are about the same size. Tabernacle is in the middle. And when you look down from heaven, what you saw was a cross, so they were encamped in the shape of a cross all the way back in Numbers, going through 
again, the, t- headed toward the land of promise. And what was interesting was that each of the four sets had one of the tribes that led the way and carried a banner. And one of the banners we know had a lion on it, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Another banner had an ox. Another banner had a man. Another banner had an eagle. So as God is looking down from heaven, sees the shape of a cross with the four faces that are on the cherubim that are around the throne, worshiping forevermore. The Bible rocks and it all points to Jesus. Amen? And now, we saw all of that last week, and now we come and we know that what they were doing, they were around the throne and they were singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the thing we talked about last week is that while God is a God of love and grace and mercy, his greatest attribute as far as what we see as being the most preeminent thing in scripture is his holiness. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he's all-knowing. And yes, he's all-powerful. But above all, he's holy. Amen? So around the throne, they're just singing over and over, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Why? They're singing that because being in his presence, that's the thing that overwhelms you is the holiness of God. And so while he is a God of love and grace and mercy, he's also a righteous God, and we will face righteous judgment if we do not surrender our lives to him. Amen? So he's still viewing the same scene we saw in chapter 4, And now he looks and he sees this scroll and it's got seven seals on it. And only the one, there was only, there was always one that had their signet on the seal. Only that person could open it. So when it was being delivered, you knew who it belonged to. And so they've got this scroll and it's in the hands of almighty God. And, and John sees this and he's overwhelmed wondering who in the world can open that scroll because we don't know what it says and we don't know what's on it. And to be real honest with you, we don't know 100% sure exactly what it is, but I believe it's pretty clear from Scripture what it is, and I'll share that with you in a moment. So this is a unique scroll because God is holding it. And there is writing on both sides, which is unusual, which meant there's a lot of writing, almost more than the scroll could contain. And once the writing on the scroll was completed uh, and it was full, it was rolled up and again fastened with these wax seals, and the seals had to be loosed. For the scroll to be read. And this scroll had seven seals on it holding it together. We know in the Bible, seven is the number of what? Completion or perfection. Amen. So this was written. This was, this was finished, if you will. And so it's got these seven scrolls on it. And John has this sense that this needs to be read, but nobody can open it. And he's being overwhelmed by it. So what exactly is on the scroll? Again, there are many opinions, I believe, It's the title deed to the planet Earth. Because Jesus didn't just die for the created, he died for all of creation, amen? Because was it creation destroyed in, 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 uh, in the Garden of Eden? What's the answer? Okay, because of one, you know, can't have one sin in heaven, you got earth part two, right? And it was one sin that brought death, pain, sorrow, and destruction. Nothing died before sin, uh, right? The first thing you, the first death you see in humanity is the shedding of blood for the covering of sin. You remember they covered themselves in fig leaves and the Lord slayed an animal and covered them, right, with animal skins because it's the shedding of blood for the covering of sin. So the first time you see the shedding of blood in all of human history, it's for the covering of, of sin. So since nearly two-thirds of the book of Revelation is a direct correlation to Old Testament texts, a good place to look for deeper understanding is always in the Old Testament. 
And so before we move on from this verse, I want to share something with you from Jeremiah 32. So Jeremiah was in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was under siege and about to fall to Babylon. If you're coming on Thursday nights, we're looking at Chronicles, where they are being set free from Babylonian captivity, where they were for 70 years and returning to Jerusalem. But at the time, the Babylonians were overrunning. And God gives this command, knowing that Jerusalem was about to be taken. God told Jeremiah in the middle of this whole siege that his cousin Hananel would come to him and offer to sell him his field in Anatoth, because Jeremiah was his near kinsman, his nearest blood relative. Now, can you imagine if there's a massive earthquake and a fire going on at the same time, and we're being attacked by an enemy, and your neighbor comes down and says, you want to buy my house, bro? As we're all escaping. And that's exactly what happens. And God tells Jeremiah, buy it. Buy the house. Yeah, you're being overrun by the Babylonians. You're going to be taken captive, but I want you to buy the house. Now, why does he want him to buy the house? Because he knew and he wanted Jeremiah to know that they were coming back, that they were going to come back and rule and reign in Jerusalem again, that though they would be taken captive, though they would be taken off away into captivity in Babylon, that God was not done yet. And here's the reality. Guess what? Even though Satan has dominion, now God is greater, Satan's a defeated foe, we don't worry about Satan, devil can't make you do anything, amen? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. That all being said, it's good to know that there's a day coming when the Lord is coming back, amen? And we are going to rule and reign with him upon the earth like it would have been in the Garden of Eden had nobody ever sinned with God on the throne. And we can walk in the coolness of the day and we could talk directly to him. And no more politics and no more pain, no more death for us. Amen? We'll be in glorified bodies. I can't wait. But in Jeremiah, we see this because he was the kinsman redeemer. So in order to keep the land and the family he would have to be, be willing to buy the land. And on the face of it, it looks like a horrible deal, but the Lord had already, again, the land had already fallen into Babylonian control. But I just love just the, the, this lesson that we learn here that applies to the text this morning. Jeremiah being offered land no longer possessed by his cousin, again, under enemy control, but knowing it wasn't over yet. And here's the good news. God's in control God's on the throne, and in light of what's going on around us, again, isn't it good to know? Is our world a mess right now? Okay. All right. Our world's a mess. By the way, there's certain people that believe that we're in a millennial kingdom. Okay. So I will pray for you. It's called the preterist view, where they believe that everything took place in AD 70. Well, it's kind of hard because the book of Revelation was written in AD 95, and it's talking about future events. So don't, don't muddle things up with the simplicity of the truth. But here's the reality, that people believe that, and they literally believe we're in the millennial kingdom right now, and that Satan is chained. And I'm like, if he's chained, that brother's on a long chain, amen? Because right now, I shouldn't call him brother, he's not my brother, can I get him into that? But here's the reality, that, that we're not in that, but we are living during a time when Satan has a level of dominion over the earth, but only because God allows it. Only because man surrendered it to him. But the good news is he's coming back. Amen? So when he comes 
Jeremiah, and God has a good way of preparing people. He told Jeremiah, yeah, your cousin's coming. He's going to want you to pay for it. Just buy it from him. So he does. He gives him 17 shekels. He puts it in an earthen vessel and he leaves it. He says, when one of your relatives comes back to the land, they're going to be able to find the ownership papers waiting for you. And so you'll, they'll be able to find the ownership papers and they'll be able to take the land back. Well, guess what? Almighty God has the ownership papers to, to the world. Amen? And that's the picture we're going to be looking at. Jeremiah did as God said. He bought the land. He signed the deal. He sealed it. He placed it in an earthen vessel. And though Jeremiah owned the property at that point, it would not be until the end of the rule of Babylon, the end of the Gentile rule, that he would be able to take possession of it. He had purchased it. He owned it. But for a period of time, it would pass before, a period of time would pass before he would take possession of it. Almighty God has paid for the earth. He's paid for your life. He possesses it. He owns it. But there's still some time before he's going to come take possession of it. But here's the good news is we know he's coming. Can I get an amen to that? And so that's the picture we see here. He's paid the price. He's paid in full. When God created the heaven and the earth, he gave dominion to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, it says, then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living creature. So God gave dominion to Adam and Eve over the whole earth. Whole earth. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they gave dominion over to the enemy. He forfeited the dominion over to Satan. A dominion God never intended for Satan to have, but he knew that he would have it. So Satan, again, is in that position where he has dominion, but he also knows he's a defeated foe. And what he wants to do is destroy you. So they deliver the, the dominion of the earth over to Satan. And in Luke 4, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, when Satan tempted him, what did he say? He said this, Then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in that moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now Jesus goes on to rebuke the devil, but he never says he's wrong about the fact that he has dominion. Now does, this should make us help us understand what's going on in the world today a little better. Amen? Because what we see is so demonic. And again, what we see all around us, I mean, your head just wants to explode at some of the stuff that's taken place in the last 10 years even, amen? And all of it is an attack on creation. God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. So they started attacking it back in the 60s when they really started promoting evolution. And again, a lot of people believe it because that's the only thing they've been taught. And we need to teach them the truth because it did not go from the goo to the zoo to you. Amen. It wasn't by random chance. Nothing doesn't become something out of nothing. That's impossible. And again, we don't check our brains at the door. We don't believe in spite of the evidence. That would be superstition. Science is very clear that we all came from a creator. Amen. And a created being. But so creation's under attack. And then what was attacked next? Marriage. God created marriage. I don't understand why people who don't believe in God want to have marriage because marriage is not a governmental institution. It is a biblical institution and God created so God defines it. Amen? But they want it. Why? Because they want their, their sin to be looked upon as acceptable. And now we know just now in the last 10 years or so and even more so in the last few years that we can't define what a man or a woman is. And I'll tell you what, if you don't understand the difference, 
Take an anatomy class, please. <laughs> Amen? God made the male and female. Baby Tinley was born this week. It's a girl. Amen? Amen? <laughs> Baby Noah was born last week. It's a girl. Her name's Noah, but it's a girl. Amen? But it's a girl. But the point I'm making is God creates us. And what does the enemy want to do? He wants to attack the simple truth of what God created. Amen? So it's an attack of the enemy. And we need to stand for the truth. We need to know that God is in control and that God is faithful. Satan, if he cannot destroy you, he will do everything he can to distract you and keep you from what God has called you to do. When Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, he not only redeemed us from sin, but he redeemed the world. It says this in Matthew 13, 34. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The field is the world, and the treasure is his bride, the church, you. That picture is a picture of what Jesus did. He sold all that he had, in a sense, to pay the price that you could be redeemed. He redeemed the world in order to get the treasure, and the treasure is you and I. So on the cross, Jesus purchased the world and the church within it. The world was sold into slavery by Adam and Eve. And in Hebrews 2, the world still is under the dominion of Satan. In Hebrews 2.8, it says, For in, in that he put all subjection under him. He left nothing that was not under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. Jesus purchased the world 2,000 years ago, but in chapter 5, he's going to take possession. This is when it takes place, right here. That's what this whole scroll is about. It's been under the dominion of Satan until John chapter 5. The church has been raptured. We're now getting a picture in heaven God is going to redeem the world in a sense. He's going to bring righteous judgment and then in the end come back and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. It says in Romans 8, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Guys, here's the answer. Should we vote biblically? What's the answer? Absolutely. Should we be proactive about it? Absolutely. Should we share our faith anywhere and everywhere we can? Pray for divine appointments. Watch what God will do. But here's the good news. The ultimate doesn't take place until Jesus is on the throne here. Amen? And it's coming. And so when you're panicked, when, you're, when the guy you voted for, the gal you voted for didn't win, or things aren't going the way you wanted, just remember there's a day coming when God wins. Amen? And we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. So here's this scroll. It's sealed with seven seals. Verse two, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? A strong angel. We don't know who this is. Some have said maybe it's Gabriel. We only see the names of two angels, well, three angels in heaven. Gabriel, who else? Michael, and who else? Lucifer. So we know it's not Lucifer, but it doesn't mention him by name, so we don't know who, who it is for sure, but who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seal. So he's saying, who is worthy? The word worthy here, who meets the qualifications? This person will need two qualifications. Must be a near kinsman, somebody related, right? In the way, so this is where you see the picture of humanity, but also must have the ability to purchase it. Again, an angel couldn't do it because he must have humanity. 
and it also must be able to redeem us. An angel could not die on the cross for you. Amen? An angel never lived a sinless, perfect life. An angel did not, was, was uh, created, not creator. Only Jesus could do that. So he had to be perfect, completely human, but also have the ability to buy us out of our sin. So who is worthy to open this scroll? Now, obviously, if you've read the book, you know. And if you haven't read the book, you should know anyway. Can I get an amen to that? Because he, is, he alone is worthy. So he has the, it's got to be somebody who's taken on humanity. It's got to be somebody who can pay the price that we could not pay. It needs to be somebody, who, again, who could triumph over sin and death. And we all know who it's pointing to. But at this moment, the angel is crying out, the strong angel, who's worthy? Because here's this scroll. It's got seven seals on it. It's in the hands of God. And who can open it? Joseph Smith cannot open it. Amen? Muhammad cannot open it. Your good works cannot open it. Being religious cannot open it. There's only one who can open it. So point number one there, who is worthy to open the scroll? Then we see none found worthy. Look at verse three and four. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to, able to open the scroll or look at it. Could not, not, could not even look at it. Couldn't even glance in its direction. The angel invites anyone in heaven, on earth, or under the earth who is able to open the scroll to step forward. And we don't know long, how long he waited. Anybody here be able to open it? Nobody. There was nobody, no angelic being. There was nobody in heaven. Nobody on earth. Nobody under the earth. Nothing under, in the demonic. There was nothing that and nobody could open the scroll. And they're looking for the answer. God's got the scroll in his hand. This is the ownership papers to, to earth. This is the ownership papers to the, the redemption of humanity, if you will, upon this planet. And God coming back and ruling and reigning and creating a new heavens and a new earth. But who's, who can do that? Who can open the scroll? And again, seven is that number of completion. And it was written on both sides and they're all in dismay. No one was able to walk forward to take the scroll out of our heavenly Father's hand, to redeem sinful earth and put dominion back into the hand of the Lord. No created being, no angel, no human, no demon was able to do so. Verse 4, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. John in heaven, having seen the glory of God and the light and the radiation that came from the one seated on the throne, having been caught up from the rock quarry of Patmos where he was imprisoned. If you haven't been coming the last few weeks, we know that by this point, it's believed that all the other apostles have been martyred. John was boiled in oil according to tradition. He did not die because God was not done with him. They put him out on the island of Patmos, which was basically a prison rock. And it was from there that God gave him this vision of what was taking place in the heavens. And so John, having, he's been caught up into the heavenly realm. He's in awe and wonder of the glory of heaven. And he's been taken from this sinful world to a holy and perfect place. And he knows that what life is like on earth. And now he knows what life is like in heaven. And here's why John is weeping. Because he knows the disaster that the world is under sin and the bondage of the enemy. But he also knows what heaven is like and he knows that the opening of that scroll is key to allowing all of us to enter into heaven and be delivered from this earth. And as he begins to weep because he recognizes, I've been in the world and I've been here. And this is where we all need to be. Amen? Every time you see it in scripture, 
right? When someone gets a glimpse of heaven, the apostle Paul had a glimpse of heaven, right? We talked about this recently and he was, you know, in Lister, he was stoned to death. I believe he says, I know of a man who was caught into the third heaven. He couldn't even describe it because it was beyond description. But when he came back, his behavior got even more radical for God. Because once you get a glimpse of heaven, you can't threaten anybody with heaven. Amen? He got a glimpse of it and like, you can't threaten me with it. He went right back into Lystra and was ready to be stoned to death again. Because again, a glimpse of heaven makes you want to, to be there all the more. Paul even said, it's far better that I'm there, but it's needful for you that I stay. Now he's in heaven now. But the point is when, so John gets a glimpse of heaven, he's, in the, he's getting that glimpse of heaven. He's seen the, the throne of God, the, the angelic host. He's heard the worship. He's seen the presence of God, the promises of God. And when he sees that that seal is locked up, he just begins to weep because his heart is broken that there would continue to be that separation between those on the earth and heaven. The word weep there means an uncontrollable flowing of tears. It's sobbing and wailing out loud. It's not just a little tear trickling down his cheek. John is overwhelmed. His heart is broken. He so longs for the scroll to be opened for the Lord to come and rule and reign over the earth, that all those who've been redeemed to join our heavenly Father in heaven and to be in the presence of Almighty God, and it breaks his heart. Let me ask you a question. Does it break your heart that there are people on this planet that are headed to hell without Jesus? It doesn't break a heart as much as it should. Amen? Why don't we share our faith more? Because we're afraid of what people will think of us. We need to who cares what they think of us? All that matters is what they know about Jesus. Amen? Amen? And we need to be unashamed of the gospel. And what the enemy wants you to do is be more concerned with being popular to men than being faithful to God. Here's John. He has a glimpse of this and his heart is broken. And our heart should be broken for every, every believer this side of heaven should be burned for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen? It should be something that we lose sleep over. John is heartbroken, overwhelmed by the thought that no one is qualified to purchase the earth back from Satan, that he will have dominion forever. And even though John is saved and going to heaven, his heart is still broken for the lost and dying world that is ruled by the enemy. And as Christians, we can become callous about the world as if, and, and we need to be careful that we don't fall into that trap. We can become so disgusted by the sinful behavior of the lost that we become hardened toward them. We ought to be heartbroken for them. Amen? Instead of being hardened toward them, we should be heartbroken for them. And my prayer is, please, I know that I call out false religions and I call them out because they're tools of the enemy, but please don't ever misunderstand that that doesn't mean I don't love every one of those people and want to see them all saved. Amen? So we can stand up. Look, if, if your family was in a house and it was on fire and you thought that that was the best place to be, I'm still going to do everything I can to drag you out in Jesus' name. Amen? And people that are caught up in false religions, the building's on fire, eternity's in the balance, and we need to love them enough to share with them the truth. If we truly see the world through the, our Savior's eyes, we will do a lot less self-righteous leering and a lot more humble weeping. Amen? A lot more has been done for the kingdom of God by humble weeping than self-righteous leering. Amen? 
A lot of Christians are portrayed as self-righteous and arrogant. And the only time you see Jesus really getting angry in Scripture, he doesn't get angry at the woman caught in adultery. He doesn't get angry with, you know, uh, the the tax collector who's ripping people off. You know he gets angry with? The self-righteous who thought they could earn heaven on their own and who were, you know, had looked at themselves as more holy than everyone else. So God's anger is toward the self-righteous religious. And again, everyone else is a sinner in need of a savior, and God was gracious toward them. The thought of Satan's continued dominion and the world and its people remaining predominantly lost and in the dark broke John's heart and brought him to tears. And again, I'm convinced that more heartbroken tears can do a lot more to reach the lost and self-righteous leers. So point number two there, none was found worthy. So they know the scroll needs to be open, but there's no one who can open it. And here's the good news. We know, we're point number three there, one is worthy, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who's able to redeem the world and sinful man. Look what it says in verse five. But one of the elders, remember the elders is 24 around the throne, remember that? One of the elders on the throne, crown on his head in a place where they're worshiping continuously, says this. One of the elders said, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Now, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, one of the angels, not an, uh, one of the elders, not an angel, but a redeemed human being, rescues John from his grief, showing him the one who's prevailed to open the scroll. The word prevailed there in Greek is conquered or gained in victory. So he has prevailed over it. He has gained it in victory. The Lord has victory. He's triumphed over sin and death. There is one who's victorious over sin, death, and all the powers of darkness, over Satan, the title holder of this fallen world, one who has the power and the ability to open the scroll, to take back the title of this world as the kinsman redeemer of all humanity, one risen and living redeemer of all mankind. Important note here is while Adam and mankind, all of us, lost the title by choosing to sin, we must never think that we have lost the battle or that Satan has won. Amen? Now again, we do fight a spiritual battle. The Bible tells us we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness in high places. So we do fight a spiritual battle, but we must never give Satan too much credit because Satan's a defeated foe. Amen? And greater is he that is in us. So the truth is that Satan is a defeated foe. God is in control. So just how does the elder in heaven describe the one who was conquered? Again, the line of the tribe of Judah. That's an Old Testament prophetic name concerning Jesus as the Messiah. Again, the lion is the emblem of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus the Messiah was born physically to the tribe of Judah. It's also the root of David. Here's another messianic term. The Messiah is referred to repeatedly in the scripture as the son of David. What's amazing is he's the creator of David and the son of David. How is that possible? You have to be creator, amen? You have to be the one who created all things and then the one who can actually, as the creator, come to earth and take on humanity. So he both created David and is a descendant of David, and nobody else can talk about anything like that but him. Amen? He's also the only one born of a virgin. 
I was texting the guy back. He goes, Jesus failed. I, I, I'm not kidding. I, I was, my head was about to explode. And when he said it, and I said, uh, was Joseph Smith born of a virgin? Uh, well, it's irrelevant. Uh, no. <laughs> Joseph Smith was a sinner. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus came because we failed. Can I get an amen to that? And it's so tragic here, but he's saying, look, he's the root of David. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's also the son of David. Speaking of his humanity, as he took on human flesh as a descendant of David. As the Messiah, he's our kinsman redeemer, and he's able to open the scroll. He says there, he prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. Verse six, and I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, remember, right? The ones we looked at last week, they moved quickly. It says there, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God and sent out into all the earth. Now you guys all understand that really clearly, right? <laughs> you got that? We probably shouldn't even have to comment on that. Okay, again, seven in the Bible is number of what? Okay, horns in the Bible are a picture of power. Okay, so our God is all powerful. Amen. Notice here, seven eyes. Eyes, sight is a picture of knowledge. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. Can I get an amen to that? That's our God. He's almighty. He's all powerful. Again, he's all knowing. And then it says, and seven spirits of God. Okay, he is God in the picture of seven in the Bible. The spirit's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So the one who is able to open the scroll, the one who I looked and behold in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures, in the midst, a lamb, it had been slain. So again, when he looks at the lamb, it's a lamb that has been slain. And again, it's a picture of our Savior who went to the cross of Calvary, and the scars are still in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. And when we get to heaven, again, it's been said, the only scars we'll see in heaven are the scars upon the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Amen? So he's saying of this one who can open the scroll, that he is one who still bears the scars of sacrifice. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit in perfect perfection. Amen? Now, who in the world is that talking about? It can describe no one else. Amen? Okay? And we see these terminologies from other places in Scripture. So he looks towards the throne, looking for one, again, who would take the scroll out of the Father's hands. And again, he uses the lamb. Now, you know, I don't know who wrote Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. But she got the first verse right. Can I get an amen to that? Didn't Mary not have a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow? What's the answer? Okay, Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. This is Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? So the next time you're singing that to your kid, just remind them. The rest of the verse is not so much. Everywhere Mary went, lamb was, you know, not, not so much. But the lamb is presented as both powerful and sympathetic. He is living as he stands in the midst of the throne but he still has the marks of a precious sacrifice upon him, his pierced hands, his pierced feet, 
and his pierced side, and he came to save us. Now, I want you to know this too. Our God is not a dead lamb. He is a, he is, he is a victorious, risen, and living Savior. Amen? So even though he was sacrificed for us, he's not a roaring lion. He's not a dead lamb, but he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? So while our, our Savior is all-powerful, he appears as a lamb in heaven representing humility, gentleness, and sacrificial love. And guys, if that's the Jesus we ought to pattern ourselves after. Amen? Not the Jesus that man creates where, oh, if you just give him money, he'll give you all this stuff, or you tell him what to do, or you make demands of him, or you command him. Now, we should look at his humility that while he's perfect, holy God, that he was willing to leave heaven and come to earth as a man and to humble himself. And guys, we ought to follow that example of our Savior. Amen? John sees his precious Lord still bearing the marks of the crucifixion. And what a humbling sight that is. The coming judgment that begins in chapter 6 is dictated and ministered to by this lamb. So while Jesus, again, he's a humble lamb, he's a gracious lamb, we also know he's holy. Amen? And that's the attribute they sing about. So when we get to chapter 6, starting next week, we're going to see that we saw the church age now we're looking at what's, what's taking place in heaven. We're seeing that the Lord is taking back the ownership papers of the earth from the enemy, and then he's going to bring righteous judgment upon those who have rejected him. But why doesn't he just wipe them all out? Why does it take seven years? Why does the Lord, uh, again, the Antichrist rises to power? Why do all those things take place? Why? Anybody know? Gives them one more chance to be saved. Can I get an amen to that? Amen? 120-pound hailstones falling from the sky on fire. Help Jesus! I'm, can I get an amen to that? The fulfillment of all the Old Testament uh, prophecies being fulfilled right in front of their eyes. Oh, you know what? We need to get right with God. Amen? Every opportunity, guys, all the trials that we go through in life, every difficulty that takes place in our lives is an opportunity for us to grow in our relationship with the Lord, or if we're not saved yet, for us to be born again. And often what has to happen, we have to come to the end of ourselves, where we've lost everything, our life is a disaster, so we will look up and recognize we need Jesus. Amen? And so the great tribulation is going to be that opportunity for all the world to give their life to the Lord. But here's the reality. And we're going to see uh, Israel. We're going to see huge amounts of revival amongst Israel. And this is why we're pro-Israel, because God's pro-Israel. And he's not done with them yet. He told Jeremiah, buy the property because I'm coming back. Can I get an amen to that? And that's why we're pro-Israel, because God is pro-Israel. So the coming judgments are coming. So that same lamb who is humble is also holy and also will bring righteous judgment. As though he had been slain, the sacrifice of Jesus is still fresh and current before God the Father. There's nothing stale or worn out about the work of the cross. Amen? It was 2,000 years ago, but it's still fresh as the day he died on the cross. It still is. Why do we do communion? We're going to take communion next week. As often as you do this, Jesus said, do this in what? In remembrance of me. Remembering the cross of Calvary, never taking for granted the greatest act of love in all of human histories. history. So seven horns, again, power, seven eyes, wisdom and knowledge, and the lamb, while a picture of humility, gentleness, and sacrificial love, is also, again, all-powerful and all-knowing. 
Our Savior is the all-powerful, all-knowing, willing sacrifice, the only one worthy to redeem sinful man back into fellowship with holy God. And then the seven spirits, here we have a clear reference to the Holy Spirit, the same seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. When Jesus comes forth to bring judgment upon the earth, he comes forth with the complete agreement of the other two persons of the Godhead. The Father gives him the scroll. The, the seven spirits are upon him. Here's a clear picture of the Trinity bringing both redemption and righteous judgment. Then it says in verse 7, Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. No created being was found worthy to take the scroll, but Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain, our kinsman redeemer, was worthy to take it. He alone is worthy to redeem us, to righteously judge all of humanity, to be worshiped and to be praised. By the way, guys, God created music so we could worship him. Amen? And too often we get so sidetracked away from what music was created for. And you've heard me say this, and, and I don't believe heaven's going to be somber. I've been to churches where worship is painful. <laughs> oh, you know, it's just like, really? You going to heaven? I go to India. I'm in a tent like this with 100 people, and it sounds like 10,000 people because they're so excited they got saved out of Islam or got saved out of Hinduism or they've been born again. They sing to the top of their lungs and bring the roof down. Can I get amen to that? And worship in heaven is going to be more like that. Amen? We're going to see that in a few verses. He's the one who could to be worshiped and to be praised, to take the scroll, the earth's title papers, to reclaim a complete and total dominion over the earth, to both judge it, to rule and reign over it. And again, he who had been redeemed, again, will rule and reign with him. Point number four, a response to the one who is worthy. So Jesus retakes, reclaims the earth. Again, he's always been, by the way, don't ever lose sight that God is always in control. Can I get an amen to that? Even though Satan has dominion, God is in control. Amen? Don't lose sight of that. Now what? What's the response of the redeemed? Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each having a harp. Here's where we get the harp in heaven. Here it is. <laughs> we, we've messed all of it up because just take that one word out or we're going to be floating on clouds playing harps. No, we're not. Amen? But if you are playing a harp in heaven, you'll be playing that harp. Can I get an amen to that? It won't sound out of key or out of tune. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be legit. But watch what it says here. Each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice when the lamb takes the scroll, the response is immediate. He takes the scroll and worship happens right now. As soon as it happens, they're before the throne, they're worshiping the Lord because he has dominion and power. And again, while there's a remnant that worships the Lord upon the earth, isn't it exciting to know there's a day coming when we'll all be worshiping him together, amen? When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Both the high-ranking angels who surround the throne of God, again, uh, beings of great wisdom and, in, in, and intellect and deep knowledge of the truth, they worship him. 
but also the elders, redeemed men who were forgiven by the sacrificial death of the Savior upon the cross. The angels have always seen Jesus for who he is, and we got to know him through his death on the cross, and all of us together are all going to be worshiping the Lord at the same time. Amen? When the Lamb takes the scroll, both the angels and the elders fall down before the Lamb, and they join together in worshiping Him. And there's a day coming when all creation will join together worshiping the Lord. And again, having a harp, every cartoon again has this idea of what heaven is like. What it signifies to me is there's going to be music in heaven. I had a friend who went to a church, they don't believe in music. And again, I don't get it. There's a book called Psalms. Just saying. 150 chapters worth, songs. Amen? And they're playing music. I don't get it. This is what happens when men get in the way of what the Word of God says. Amen? If each of us had an instrument this morning, we just handed them out at the back of the tent and we all started just trying to play them, that would not be good. Can I get amen? <laughs> We've got a few people who will be amazing, and the rest of us, oh, not so much. When we get to heaven, it's all going to be in tune. Can I get an amen to that? All going to be perfect. I believe it's not only possible, but probable that we will worship with not only our voices, but in instruments in heaven. Always wanted to play beautiful music. Guess what? You will. Amen? Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. These redeemed men symbolically pour out the prayers of the saints before the Lamb. Now, they're not praying for them. The Old Testament model of heaven, the altar of incense, was also a picture of prayer. And the key point, the elders are not interceding on behalf of the saints, placing themselves as mediators. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, and his name is? That's right. That's why we don't pray to saints. Can I get an amen to that? We don't pray to saints. They're dead. They're in heaven. And they, they can't do anything for you. Can I get an amen to that? The, by the way, how many saints we got in the room? You're either a saint or an eight. Can I get them into that? Okay. So if you're giving your life to Jesus, you're a saint, sanctified, set apart one. If I die before you, don't be praying to me because I ain't paying attention to none of it. Can I get them into that? <laughs> Amen. That's foolish. Why would you pray to dead Dave when you can pray to a risen living Savior? Can I get them into that? So we pray the true and living God. That's who we pray to. So they're not praying for God's people, and no way does this justify, again, you know, Roman Catholic practices of praying to the saints. The elders represent God's people. This event signifies the prayers of God's people being poured out on behalf of the Lord, on before the Lord, excuse me. How precious are the prayers uh, of, of God's people? He places them in golden bowls. He regards them as sweet-smelling incense. Prayer is so important in the life of the believer, it takes our focus off of ourselves and places it on the Lord and draws us nearer to Him. Amen? Your prayer life is a reflection of how you're doing with the Lord. Got not one amen in the room. If we're not praying, do we, does God answer prayer? What's the answer? Does He hear our prayers? What's the answer? And we can pray to Him anywhere and anytime, right? So we have no excuse not to pray. And then most of it, how many of you need to pray more? <laughs> Whose fault is that? It's us. Can I get an amen? Ever notice how much of us are more apt to pray during times of, lack, in lack, times of great difficulty and times when we're in a, in a tough situation? 
And you know what? And then you wonder why you're in so many tough situations because the Lord misses you. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> Psalm 141 says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Incense was a pleasing aroma. It ascends into heaven. It needs fire before it can be of any use. The smoke ascends into heaven are the pleasing aroma, right? So our prayer needs to be mixed with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen to that? That's why if you don't know the Lord and you pray, it goes nowhere. Because you need to pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me finish up. Now watch, watch what happens. So they sang a new song. And it says there, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain and you redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Amen, amen, and amen. We are kings. The Bible tells us that we will rule and reign with him upon the earth during the millennial kingdom. We'll have authority over things on the earth during that reign when people are being born again during the, the time upon the earth. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, right? It just took place. And again, we should have that song on our lips as believers singing out and praising him. So we see the response of the redeemed. Now, how does creation respond as we close? Look at verse 11 through 14. Now, how does creation respond? You hear people say this. We're going to go a couple minutes over again. We're in Revelation, okay? Amen. Amen. Thank you. You and I can stay together as the rest of them live. Now, the one thing that is so important to notice is people, people think when they get to stand before God, they're going to have questions or they're going to have demands or they're going to ask him why he did certain things. Uh, none of that will happen. Amen. Here's what's going to happen. Then I looked, look at verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. This is, if you just multiply that at the lowest common denominator, it's 100 million. But we know it's going to be even more than that saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now notice this, and I love this picture. And every creature which is in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, such as those are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. All of creation will be crying out to him. Amen? All of creation will be worshiping him. Those who are on the earth, above the earth, in, under the earth, all of the earth. The Bible tells us if we don't worship, the rocks will cry out his name. Amen? Because he is the one who's created all things. Again, the angels, though not redeemed themselves, have a front row seat to, what, to, to God's work in us. Do you know that we're seeing what's happening here is Worship is becoming contagious. Earlier, we saw the angels worshiping and mankind joining in, and now we're going to see creation worshiping and the angels joining in. Amen? So all of creation will worship the Lord. The Bible tells us that the angels are watching us, and we actually teach them things. They see us with no doubt greater clarity than we see ourselves, 
Again, they know just how fallen we are, but they're blown away by the greatness of the Lord's redeeming work in us and the work he does through us. And we should be blown away by that. Every creature, John couldn't be any more complete in his description. Truly, this is every creature in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them. Every created being will come to worship. Worship who? Jesus. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne. Again, him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ. This combined worship of the Father and the Lamb is as strong a testimony as there is in Scripture to the deity of Jesus Christ. People say, Jesus, when I was in Arizona, I was in Arizona for a few days, my son's birthday that lives in Colorado, my other son came down from, with his wife and my grandson, and we all went to spring training, and it was just really about hanging out with my boys. And I'm walking down the street, and I'm talking to Joshua Camper on the phone, and I run into a group of Jehovah's Witnesses. They call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses because they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That's why they're called Jehovah's Witnesses. And then you got the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, who think that Jesus failed and Joseph Smith fixed it. Guys, don't be fooled by people's names. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus is God. He's the great I am. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Lamb of God. He's the creator of all things. He's the redeemer of mankind, and he is worthy to be worshiped and to be praised. Last verse. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They worship. The word Greek literally is to lay before another in complete submission. They lay prostrate, face down on the ground, before Almighty God, fully surrendering to Him. The, the angels did it. The elders did it. All of mankind does it. A hardened attitude of complete and total surrender. True worship is more than singing songs. It's a plate, place of complete surrender to the Lord. Amen? When, we should, when should we surrender to Him and for how long? Is it enough to surrender some? No, we need to surrender all. Amen? Go to my knees, but not to my face. These elders fell down on their knees and worshiped the Lord face down on the ground. Worship is much more about an attitude of the heart than an attitude, but also is an attitude of complete and total surrender to him who lives forever and ever. You know, kings and Caesars and presidents all die. Amen? All the people you put your faith in, pastors die, leaders die, they all die. But the one who will never die, the one who will rule and reign forever is the Lord. Amen? So, I know we went through a lot, but guess what? Day's coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a day coming. We'll be around his throne with the angels singing praise songs to our Savior. And you know what? We're about to have a worship song. Maybe we should get a little practice for that. Can I get an amen to that? Not be so somber. Let's worship. So worthy is the lamb. Who's worthy to open the scroll? Jesus. None were found worthy. Again, Jesus had to step up because no one else could do it. One is worthy. Jesus, the lamb of God, who's able to redeem the, the world and sinful man. And what should our response be? Falling down, praying, worshiping, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and coming to a place of full surrender to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. You are indeed a great and an awesome God. And we cannot wait for that day when we will be around your throne, worshiping you ever, forevermore. The presence, your presence, your power, your holiness, your grace. We, we look forward to being with those who've gone before us. 
We can't even imagine what heaven's going to be like because we're finite men and women trying to understand the infinites of, of, of heaven and the God that we serve. And Lord, we long for that day, but Lord, with the time we have left on this planet, may we be busy about your work. And may we have a little practice for heaven right now as we enter into this time of worship. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. That's